You're listening to a Share Radio podcast. It rises both in hulk and height. Behold it swelling like a sop. The liquid medium cheats your sight. Behold it mounted to the top. The devils leaving the possessed and headlong in the waters drown. The nation then too late will find computing all their cost and trouble. Directors promises but wind. South Sea at best a mighty bubble. Those were the words of Jonathan Swift in his poem, The South Sea Project, read by producer Matthew Cook. And those words are terribly evocative of a time of financial crisis in Britain, the South Sea bubble time, perhaps the first great financial bubble of British history. In the 1700s, um, the British Empire was the biggest and most powerful in the world. For the British, the 18th century was a time of prosperity opulence, and it meant that a large section of the population had money to invest and were looking for places to put that money. So the South Sea Company had no problem attracting investors when, with an IOU to the government worth £10 million, the company purchased the rights to all of the trade in the South Seas, and that included all of Central and South America. I spoke to Dr. Helen Paul, who's a lecturer in economics and economic history at the University of Southampton, about the enormous bubble that followed the founding of that company and how it eventually burst. I started by asking her to tell me what the British economy was like at the time and how this particular environment led to the creation of the South Sea Company. Well, the Navy had racked up a huge amount of debt, which wasn't really being paid. And Navy contractors were threatening to stop supply, which they often did. But this time they were really getting serious. So the company was supposed to give its shares to these contractors in lieu of actual cash payments. And it was going to then um, trade in slaves and goods to South America. So the idea was it would be part of this big trading project, uh, which we now call the fiscal military state or the contractor state, the idea of uh, bringing together war and trade in order to try and outfox your European rivals, trying to beat them on the battlefield, but also um, in terms of trading. And that's why financial innovation was become more and more important. You were actually competing with France primarily to see if you could restructure your debt and then that would give you more power later on. So the, so the South Sea Company is founded. At the time um, in the 18th century, it was a time of prosperity, opulence. A large section of the British population had money for the first time, um, and they were looking for places to put that money. So in a lot of ways, the South Sea Company was always going to be an investment success, was it not? Well, it's, it seems as if there weren't very many other opportunities for people looking to put money into something that wasn't just their own uh, house or their own business. So in that sense, it was a good investment opportunity, partly because the South Sea Company was one of a handful of joint stock companies that meant you could buy a share, which you could then easily uh, assign to someone else, and you could also have limited liability. And those features, which we now take for granted, they were quite rare at the time. Hmm. 
And of course, um, the East India Company that already was well established did very well and was already paying considerable dividends to to its investors. But its investors were very limited at the time. There were only 499 investors. So of course, people were looking for similar opportunities um, to to put that put to put their money, like you said. Um, so what was the South Sea Company? You mentioned that it would be trading in um, military goods, slaves. Um, what was the, how was the company supposed to function? Well, it was supposed to take um, trade goods out to Africa, swap them for slaves, and then take the slaves into Spanish-held America, the Caribbean, and then to Spanish-held America, and then come back round what we call the triangular trading route, bringing goods from the New World, the Caribbean, back to Britain. And whilst it was doing that, it would then have the opportunity to get into the Spanish-American markets, which were reliant on slaves, but also were starved of manufactured goods. And the idea was, I think, as well, that they were thinking about whether the company might end up like another East India company. Would they be able to grab territory from their rivals? But if not, they were still hopefully getting a steady uh, government fee because they were also dealing with some of the government debt liabilities. They'd taken that on for them and the government paid them a kind of management fee as well. And then you've got dividends on top. So there were various features to having a share, some of which were low risk, some which were high risk, all packaged into the one financial instrument. This, go- this relationship with the government is quite a significant element of the South Sea Company. How did this come about? How did this, this function? Well, this time the government is really, or the, the elite who run the government, they are enmeshed in everything. Um, it's not the kind of democracy that we have today. So only certain people can vote and they're the landed. And they are involved with the South Sea Company from the beginning, partly because of political factions that we need not get into now, but then they become uh, part of the the new Hanoverian regime as well. So the new uh, Protestant line, George I and his descendants, they are um, involved in the company, sometimes, you know, buying shares in it. You've got senior government people involved in publicly being involved in, in backing the company because it is as a joint stock company, it's a bit odd to explain this. It's a kind of quasi-public entity anyway. It's it's doing private company things, but it's also part of this sense of building up the state's power. Um, it, it might be a stalking horse to get into grabbing a bit of colony in Spanish America. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of hybrid of private and public company. So 1711, the company is founded... Um, with tremendous potential, it, it should be added. You know, the slave trade was still booming in South America, was still doing very well. Um, there was loads of scope for um, European manufactured goods to be to be introduced into the Mexican and South American markets, who obviously were just just pining for a little wool or or something like that. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, so you know, people were very enthusiastic. How did the first um, sort of IPO, I suppose we can call them? How how did that first um, that first sale of stocks happen? So the first shares that actually go to people who are naval contractors because the government owes them money and it pays them in South Sea Company shares. So unusually, they're not just selling shares to the general public at that point. But then later on, you get direct sales to the primary market, but you also get people being offered shares in uh, lieu of their government 
debt that they hold. So people who are government creditors of all sorts, who just hold a, an annuity or something like that, they are offered the opportunity to swap that for South Sea Company shares. So the shares actually go out into the world through a variety of different channels. And that was quite unique at the time. I mean, I suppose it's unique now. No one would, would dream of, of, of floating stocks this way today. Well, there were a few um, precedents for this idea of swapping debt for shares, simply because the debt instruments they had were very difficult to assign to anyone else. So if you had that, it wasn't very liquid. You couldn't really pass it on to your heirs as easily. And also the debt would go into, government would go into arrears, which is odd for us to think about because we think about British government debt today as being very solid investment, uh, you know, but it's not at the time. There's a big arrears problem. Hmm. So then um, the public starts to invest in the in the South Sea Company. It didn't really seem to matter at the start that the company, the, the value of the shares wasn't really heeded by the by the performance of the actual company. Management in the company wasn't particularly experienced, but people were very excited about about it. Was it a PR success of sorts right at the very beginning, the success of the the South Sea Company uh, shares? Well, the PR angle is that people saw very important individuals in the government or in the court being associated with the company. It had clear government support at a time when political backing really mattered. And our understanding of what we might call corruption or bribery is a little different to theirs. You know, that the idea that you had backing, which could be military backing or naval backing of some sort. And also the South Sea Company was linked into the Royal African Company to deal with the actual share trading side of it. And the Royal African Company, although it, it was in a bit of a state by this time, it had a lot of experience in the trading of slaves. So there were also, people who were very well thought of, well-known financiers, who were associated with the company in its board of directors. They weren't necessarily in the kind of inner circle, but the public weren't to know that. So soon after the South Sea Company is founded, another company, the Mississippi Company, appears. It establishes itself in France, but it's the brainchild of a British man called John Law. And um, <clears throat> this company wasn't based so much in trade but in switching monetary systems from gold and silver into, into paper currency. And the Mississippi Company catches the attention of continental traders. And, um, you know, soon the Mississippi Company's stock is, is soaring. So people really are looking to invest. Um, is this a sign of the times, I guess, that people um, were proud of these companies? They believed that they couldn't fail. They believed in this sort of new world idea that there were endless riches to be had in, in, in North America and Central and South America, and therefore nothing could go wrong. Well, that's the standard history textbook approach that people were completely over-optimistic. But in reality, with the Mississippi Company, it was actually a hybrid of umpteen smaller and longer established French overseas trading companies. Plus, in John Law completely overturned the usual thinking. He was actually quite a pioneering economic thinker. He was the first person to want to establish an official paper currency in Europe, although the Chinese had paper currencies. There wasn't any understanding of paper currency in Europe except for a kind of expedient stopgap measure. So some of his ideas are actually very sound, and people, again, wanted to buy into the Mississippi Company, partly, as you say, because there were excess resources to invest. We'd come to the end of two big 
European wars. And really people were, I suppose, taking money out from under the bed and wanting to put it somewhere, invest it. Both of these companies are doing tremendously well in, in the stock market, I guess. When does it, When does the South Sea company start to show signs that it's not really performing as well in real life, um, if I may say so, than it is um, in the eyes of the investors? Well, the South Sea company partly uh, was in its bubble in 1720s, partly inflated when people leave the French market and head to London as a safer haven. So around that time, some people who are more savvy understand that this is bubble is inflating because the company is starting to its shares are starting to go way above what any reasonable fundamental value could possibly be. And it's it's share so its slave trade stops momentarily, really, about 1718, because there's a spat with the Spanish, which is soon resolved. But you're left with this issue of a warning, if you like, that the slave trade can be stopped any time there's a problem between Britain and Spain. And despite the company relying on um, the company trading in, in other goods like wool and, and, and other things, the slave trade was really the backbone of its of its revenue, was it? Well, the slave trade was necessary because they're actually bringing in the manufactured goods along with the slave ships. They had a, the right to bring in one trading ship. What they actually did was they hid a lot of things on board the slave ships and sold them really as contraband because the Spanish authorities wanted their colonies to be completely dependent on their mother country of Spain for manufacturers, which they thought would be a kind of protectionist argument to keep the Spanish manufacturing going. It just meant that they were starving the colonies of things that the colonials wanted. So that that alone should have been a warning sign that perhaps the company wasn't as sound as it, it projected itself to be if it was relying essentially on contraband to, to make a large part of its revenue. Well, consider the time that this was. Uh, you know, Spain is very far away, and certainly there had been reasons to think that the old Spanish monarchy was... Um, not doing very well. It was the Habsburgs. And then there was a regime change that went to the Bourbons, who happened to be starting to reform. But even so, the Spanish Empire was so vast that it was difficult sometimes for them to keep hold of everything. And they did have problems with pirates and privateers and all sorts. So it's a different world. And you do you do find that, well, if you look closely at the East India Company, it wasn't quite so robust throughout its lifetime as people think. It had moments of being reliant on, on sharp practice. And what about um, rumors of mismanagement of the South Sea Company? Is Are those founded at all? Um, there are stories about whole shipments of wool being misdirected and then left decaying in foreign ports. And um, the fact that um, directors in London were, were spending loads and loads of money and furnishing and, af- and very expensive furnishings for their, for their quarters over here and not really paying that much attention to the business. So did people start to notice these things or were they just rumours in essence? Well, these sorts of stories really are hard to, they're hard to know whether they're rumours or not. Sometimes there are blockages in the trade, so some things do go wrong. But what really happens in London is that a man called John Blunt, who's very much in charge of the company, he starts trying to rig the market. He starts trying to give money in loans to people who already own 
South Sea Company shares in the hope that they will then go and buy more shares and that will prop up the share price and make it even more. And that's a very silly thing to do, as you can imagine. It doesn't really work in the long run. And was John Blunt doing this because he he believed in, in, in the company or was he doing it because he already detected a bubble and he was trying to prop it up? Blunt just seems to be someone with no real interest in actual hard work. He seems to just be somebody who tries to manipulate the market. And unfortunately, he takes a, a lot of other people along with him. But the you know the various stories that came out at the time of excess and people making uh, arrogant statements and all that sort of stuff is probably just propaganda. Hmm. But then eventually, the actual management of the of the South Sea Company takes a step back and realizes that the value of their own personal shares in the company didn't really reflect the performance of the company, which had quite dismal earnings towards towards the end of the bubble there. And they sold their stocks in the summer of 1720, hoping no one would realize that they were divesting themselves. How did the bubble eventually burst when people realized what was happening? In the way that bubbles usually tend to burst is that the most informed people try and sell out before everybody else sells out and then you get a panic a stampede and people then move their money as it happens back to the continent in order to find a safer haven there so as well you've got trigger factors like you're coming up to the end of the accounting year that they had then because they settled their debts around the harvest time you've also got an issue of the court moving to hanover because they always went there and sometimes that might pull a bit of money out of the market as people wanted traveling expenses so there are various things that might have suddenly been the the key factor that made the better educated about the markets anyway the better informed want to pull the money out so the bubble burst, people realized that it was little more than a farce. And um, the, South sea, the South Sea bubble dragged down a lot of other institutions with it. Um, some people say even the collapse of the Mississippi company, the Mississippi bubble, was connected to the South Sea. Is, is, that, is that accurate? Well, the Mississippi bubble bursts before the South Sea. So some of the money coming out of France goes to London for that reason. And... The problem is that the South Sea Company and the Mississippi were in competition and that might have made people within those companies overstretch themselves. But the underlying reason for the competition is basically war. It's that France and Britain know that they're going to meet each other on a battlefield sooner or later. And if one country becomes economically very powerful, the other one will lose, perhaps permanently. So it's it's a fluke really that... Both these states are now separate. It could easily have happened that one would have overtaken the other. And it's that competition that underpins perhaps the willingness to take risks in France with the way that they were actually running the economy, making big, big changes, perhaps too quickly to the financial structure. And also in in London, they were trying to catch up as well. They had to be aware that of what was going on in France, and they copied each other. Back to the the bursting of the bubble. The South Sea Company was pretty much ubiqu- ubiquitous in the portfolios of investors of the time. Why didn't it cause a complete crash of the system when it finally burst, given the scope of, well, just the amount of money that was involved? Probably because people have overstated exactly how damaging the crash was and how many people were 
really involved in it and to an excessive degree you could lose a bit of money as anybody can and some people did make money out of it so thomas guy he invested in the company earlier and then he sold out when the prices became silly prices and some of that money went into guy's hospital in london so you hear about the people who complain loudly you don't hear so much about the people who did well because of course the money isn't just disappearing into thin air it's sometimes moving from one investor to another based on the fact that if i sell out my shares to you the money comes to me so overall the economy seems to do reasonably well and the company is restructured there's not a really prolonged economic decline or anything like that and the economy just carries on Is there any interference by the British Empire or the government to stabilize the banking industry in order in order to prevent a, a bigger crash? Yes, there's certainly a rescue package is put together. Partly it's practical. It's doing things like rejigging various contracts between people involved in the South Sea, making it fairer. Um, so there were some people who had government debt holders who'd been at the last gasped swapped for shares at a very unfavorable rate. So there's something like that. There's also the Bank of England steps in and helps to prop up the system. And then some of it is just a simple uh, attempt to calm everyone down by having big show trials and an inquiry and making a lot of political noise and then saying, right, that's it. We can't continue with this anymore. We'll move on to the next crisis. The the South Sea bubble is still remembered today as one of the uh, great catastrophe, uh, so to speak, of, of a mar market crash at the time. Why is it do we rem that we remember it um, in, as such a, such a devastating crash when, in fact, as you say, um, things actually got handled quite well and fixed fairly um, efficiently? I think it's because it's an early crash. It's one that happens with a lot of print culture and a lot of famous prints like Hogarth's print of the bubbles. So there's a lot of commentary around it that drowns out, if you like, the economics of it. But also it's got such a catchy name, the South Sea bubble and the Mississippi bubble and tulip mania, they have these very strange names that people remember, even if they don't really know much about the bubbles themselves. And of course, once it becomes a trope, once everyone mentions it as the thing, when there's a financial bubble, then you get it You get it every time there's a financial crash. We actually, as financial journalists, think about um, all of these bubbles as the, 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 the beginning of financial journalism, so to speak, with uh, Defoe's accounts of um, of these bubbles. And he, he does not fairly make use of the, of the hyperboles in, in his accounts. Well, I think that's correct, that there's money to be made in financial journalism at this time or financial commentary, even if you're not terribly well placed because Defoe himself was bankrupted twice so I wouldn't have taken financial advice from him but he knew that there was a market for complaining about the financial world partly as, as because some of these people were seen as nouveau riche or foreign there was a lot of discrimination that underpins a lot of the commentary Tulip mania, Mississippi bubble, and uh, the South Sea Company bubble um, all occur within about 100 years of each other. They're quite big market crashes in a time when the market is still developing. How did investors sort of learn and how did the market adapt? Um, you know, there, isn't, there aren't bubbles as quite as well known or thought of as catastrophic as these three for, for a while after that. No, I think those smaller bubbles are perhaps not as famous and people 
learned by doing to some degree or they learned by discussing these events and sometimes it was a question of um, that the shares the stock market start to become more and more important for people and start to become more embedded in the economy but people were used to using financial instruments of various sorts be they lottery tickets or be they credit notes or, or all sorts of things so in a way just because you have this these problems doesn't mean it puts people completely off finance. So much of what they did had to be about planning for the future. Mm. And so they had to think about how to invest. That's all we have time for to explore the South Seas today. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Helen Paul, lecturer in economics and economic history at the University of Southampton. (laughs) 